We're going to read, I want to read the text. It's not that long this morning. I want to read the text together. You can take your Bibles. It's not going to be up on the screen. So I will try to get us to look into our, our Bibles and do things that way. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 32 through 38. Nehemiah 9, 32. And I'll give you just a moment to get there. While we're waiting, uh, it's good to have James and Jeannie and Rick and Brenda from Douglasville, Georgia. Used to fellowship with them at Arbor Heights Bible Church. Uh, and uh, James and Jeannie was a part of Bible study in our home. And we, uh, we thank the Lord for both those couples. They've been a blessing to us in our lives. And it's really good to worship with them this morning. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly our kings our princes our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your warnings that have been given them even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land which you set up before them they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you, that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Let us pray together. Father, thank you how you worked in history through the nation of Israel, your chosen people, to prepare people for the coming of your Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. Your law accomplished exactly what you intended. So today, God, in light of the blessings in Christ, in the new covenant, may we grasp the significance of our blessings. May we understand that we can never earn your favor by keeping the Old Testament law or any set of laws. That salvation, our holiness, comes only by faith. By faith alone in Christ alone. By His grace alone. Work in our hearts this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Born in 1948, 
Carla Downing always felt a little out of place with her parents and her younger brother. Her mother, Mildred, passed away in 1965 when she was only 16 years of age. After her mother's funeral, a lady named Mary was introduced to her as a friend of her mother's. Mary seemed upset that day, but Carla thought, well, it must be just because she's grieving the passing of her friend, my mother. Carla soon moved to Alexandria. Her father was in service. She moved in with her grandparents. And she sort of put her unsettled feelings behind her, at least for a time. After high school, she married and had a son. But in 1990, her father Chester passed away. And after his funeral, a relative gave Carla her father's briefcase with all his documents. He had made arrangements for that before he died. In these papers, and with the help of her brother and uncle, Carla discovered her true identity. Carla discovered that Mildred was not her biological mother. Chester was not her biological father. And Ron was not her biological brother. She began to understand why things did not seem right. She eventually discovered that in her, that her real biological mother was that Mary lady that she met for one brief moment after her mother's funeral when she was 16. She also discovered that Mildred had had several miscarriages and desperately wanted a child. Mildred and Mary were very good friends. So Mary, her biological mother, we don't know all the circumstances. When she entered the hospital to deliver Carla, she used Mildred's birth certificate so that the child would belong to Mildred, not to her real mother. Carla loved the parents she grew up with. She loved her brother. She knew that something, somehow she knew something was not quite right. She didn't have that natural connection to her family. Nothing against adoption. But we're talking about biological connection. When Carla was again reunited with her biological mother, she described it as the best day of her life. She immediately had a connection with her biological mother. What does Carla's experience have to do with Nehemiah chapter 9? Well, last week, we ended with verse 31. And so I want to look at that this morning again. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now, remember, Israel, as we discovered in verses 16 through 30, over and over rebelled against God. And in one form or another, God was merciful to them. Sometimes he just expressed mercy, even in their sin. Sometimes he brought adversaries to cause them to turn back to him. But in one form or another, God was merciful to the nation of Israel. 
And this is described as God's great compassion because he did not make an end of them or forsake them. That word, and I never knew this before, but I discovered this week that the Hebrew word translated compassion or great compassion is also often translated womb or out of the womb. It's compassion by extension of the womb. It's a kindred compassion, a compassion for all that come from the womb that you're connected to. It's that kindred. So it's a tender love, a maternal or paternal love, a family compassion. That's the kind of compassion that's talked about in verse 31. He said, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. It's because of that kindred compassion that he did not destroy them. God was long-suffering with Israel because of his kindred compassion. It says, for you are gracious, a gracious and compassionate God. This is God's character. It's who he is. Notice God is gracious and compassionate as a father in spite of Israel's rebellion against him. God treats Israel as kindred, as out of the womb, even though they had rebelled against his holy standard. The law was his holy standard. Israel acted as enemies or an enemy. God treated them as brothers. That's the God of the word. That's the God that we serve and that we worship. Remember, Israel was in bondage to the law. Galatians describes it that way. The law was their guardian until the fullness of time came, according to Galatians. God did not overlook their sins like we saw last week. He did not. In mercy, he passed over their sins until the Messiah would come and bring them into the new covenant. The point is that even though Israel was unfaithful to their God, they committed spiritual adultery. God, in his great compassion, did not destroy them, and he withheld his judgment from them. Now, keeping in mind God's great compassion, I want you to see where we're going today. Keeping in mind his great compassion and faithfulness to a sinful people. Keeping in my, I'm looking for a, I'm looking for a uh, slide there. There we go. I'm sorry. <laughs> Keeping in mind God's great compassion and faithfulness to a sinful people. Notice from the text three things. That's what we're going to see today. Three different things from the text. The dependent of, dependence of God's people upon God's amazing character. We're already seeing that in verse 31. It'll continue in the next verse, the next two verses. The danger of rebelling against God's character because it leads to slavery and the danger of trusting one's ability to obey God. You could call it decisionalism. Notice first, the dependence of God's people upon God's amazing character. Verse 32. Let's see that together. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, 
and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. Do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all the people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. So in spite of Judah's rebellion, Israel's rebellion against God, God is still great. He's mighty. He's awesome or fearful. He keeps covenant and loving kindness. He begins with this description of the character of God. He's great. He's the great, the greatest above all. He's the one that is magnified. He is above all. And we're reminded of the Psalms, those many Psalms and many scriptures that point to God's greatness. Psalm 95, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The next chapter, 96.4, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And both these texts go on to connect God's greatness to his creative power. Interesting. Verse 32, he's the mighty as well. Not only is he the greatest or the great, he's the mighty. It means to be strong or to be brave. Due to God's might, nothing can prevent God from carrying out his will. He is indeed sovereign. Nothing can prevent God from protecting his elect. He is sovereign. Nothing can prevent God from saving the vilest of sinners. He is sovereign. He is mighty. He's declared in God's word as mighty in his works and his deeds. He's definitely, he's in his fullness, he's mighty. He goes on in verse 32, and the awesome God. The word awesome means to fear, to be frightened, to reverence, or it can even be translated terrible because God is holy. He's just. He's awesome. He's to be reverenced. We should have a fear of God, especially if we're under his judgment. His very nature should instill a reverence before God far greater than all other reverences. He's to be reverenced above all because he is awesome. He's awesome according to God's word and his works and deeds and his name and his majesty. He is God. The very fact that he's God should cause us to fear and reverence him because he is awesome. Also in verse 32, who keeps covenant and loving kindness. Literally, who keeps gracious covenant. The word gracious is good, kind, or faithful. It's his good, kind covenant. His faithful covenant because he always keeps it. God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants. Remember, we've touched on it a couple times, Genesis chapter 12. God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants to give him a great, na uh, great land, we should say, the land of promise, to make him a great nation. He had to have descendants. To bless those who bless him, 
and his descendants and curse those who curse him and his descendants. And then in verse 3 of Genesis 12, in you, in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In him. For this prophecy to be fulfilled, Abraham had to produce offspring. He had to have children. But at this time, Abraham was 99 and his wife was 89. Besides that, Sarah had never been able to have children. And now she's 89 years of age. And God tells her, tells him that his wife, Sarah, is going to have a son. And we know the story. They believed God, but they didn't fully believe God because they tried to make it happen with Hagar, the handmaid, the, the slave, the servant, producing Ishmael. But God made a promise. And later, God let Abraham know, no, this is going to come through. This is, going to, this is through Isaac. And remember, Sarah laughed. Isaac means laughter because Sarah laughed because this prophecy seemed ludicrous to them, to her in particular. She laughed. It's not possible. But everything is possible with God. Whatever God chooses, whatever he declares, will. So that's the prophecy. And in that prophecy, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 430 years later came the Mosaic Covenant. And you will be cursed. God always keeps covenant. No exceptions. He keeps his word. Yep, here we see that God was depending on his character. In spite of the fact that they had disobeyed the Mosaic Covenant over and over again, he, the people are depending on God's graciousness and compassion. And it's true. He loved them as kindred. That compassion was an out-of-the-womb compassion for his elect. He is the greatest. He, but most of all, they were trusting again in the fact that God is gracious and compassionate. Look at verse 32b. Do not let all the hardship you, which has come upon us, our kings and our princes and our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day, their plea was that God would not view their sufferings lightly. They did not want more justice. They wanted that amazing kindred compassion. They wanted mercy. And they were not wrong in seeking God's compassion. Verse 33, You are just in all that has befallen us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. You're lawful, you're righteous, and everything that's come upon us. The children of Israel could not accuse God of being unjust because God is just. He is righteous. He's, they say you have acted faithfully. The word means 
reliably or faithful to his nature, to his character. But we have acted with wickedly. You have acted faithfully. We have acted wickedly. Because God is always faithful regardless of what we do. Paul reminds us of that very thing in the book of Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 11. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, here it is. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Nehemiah 9 reveals that Israel knew much about God. God had revealed himself to Israel. But think about this this morning. That revelation had continued, didn't it? They didn't, I mean, they were mainly dependent on the Pentateuch. They didn't have much of the historic literature, the prophetic, some of the prophetic books. They didn't have any of the New Testament. God had revealed himself. But God has revealed much more to us. We have much more revelation. We actually know much more than those Jews did. Yes, they knew God. They should have known him. But we have much more reason to know him in more intimacy because he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember Hebrews 1? God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. And I suggest that everything in the Christian life stems from knowing and trusting him. Jesus prayed in that great high priestly prayer in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that we might know him. Do you know the one this morning that was wounded for your transgressions, bruised for your iniquities? The chastening that brought peace was put upon him and he took blows that we might be healed. He was treated as profane, as common, as the one that actually broke the law even though he never sinned. And he paid for the sins of all who believe. Do we know him this morning? Folks, we're talking about God has revealed himself in the word. He has spoken, and he is a gracious and compassionate God who has provided salvation for everyone that we believe. So not only in our text we see the dependence of God's people upon God's amazing character, notice also the danger of rebelling against him. Listen to the words of Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 34 to 37. Our kings and our leaders and priests and fathers did not obey your law or listen to your commandments and warnings that you gave them. For while they were in their kingdom with the abundance of goodness 
you had given them. And in the spacious and fertile land, you set before them that they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. So here we are today as slaves in the land. You gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and goodness. Here we are as slaves. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings. You have set us, set over us because of our sins. And they rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in distress. Again, we saw that the nation of Israel had rebelled again and again against God. They were rebellious. They disobeyed God's laws and God was merciful. Israel was back in the land of promise. God had brought them three returns from the land of Babylon or now the land of Persia and brought them back to the land. So we might think, you know, here's the people that's now blessed. They're back in the land of Judah. They put up the walls of Jerusalem, the temple under uh, Zerubbabel and then Ezra. Every, the city was rebuilt. So they're back secure. That security gave, that, or that city gave security to even the Jews that were around the city of Jerusalem. It provided security for them as a nation. It was important. But we must remember, they're still under Persian territory. It's not like they're free people. They had to pay taxes to Persia. Nehemiah had forbidden that the Jewish leaders take advantage in collecting those taxes but they still were subject to the Persian kingdom. They were not an autonomous people. They were slaves, as they describe right here. So although we can look at the blessings of what God did in, you know, through Nehemiah and the people rebuilding the wall, they're still slaves of Persia. Judah was Persian territory, just as at one time was Babylonian territory. They were under the dominion of a foreign nation. There's a principle here. Sin leads to slavery. It was true in that day, and it's true today. Sin leads to slavery. It led to being under the bondage or the slavery of Persia in this case. You know, it began back with Assyria when they captured the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., And then beginning on 606 to 586, taken over by Babylon, and then Persia overtook Babylon, they're still dominated. They're still under the tyranny of the Jews, and it continues. They eventually end up under the Romans. When Jesus comes on the scene, they're under the Roman tyranny, as they would say. They were not autonomous. They were not free. But... The principle, again, is that sin leads to slavery, and it's true for us today. We might not be under the domination of a foreign nation, but sin still leads to slavery. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. What then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave who you obey, 
whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. The sins of Israel led to slavery of the nations, but sin by its very nature leads to slavery. The practice of sin leads to slavery. It's destructive, and it leads to death. And we can relate this to the addictive nature of sin. It is slavery. And we have no ability in and of ourselves to break free from that kind of slavery. I've seen people go from addiction to addiction. But I've only seen people that trusted in Christ that were really set free. So we see in our text the dependence of God's people on God's amazing character, the danger of rebelling against his character, and then finally the danger of trusting one's ability to free oneself, to obey God, to please God. Verse 38, Nehemiah 9. In view of all this, we make a binding agreement, putting it in writing and sealing it with the names of our leaders, the Levites, and the priests. And that's what chapter 10 is all about. It's a description of the agreement and how, what they were going to do. And we'll see it next week. So the children of Judah make a binding agreement with God, basically saying, we will now obey your law. We'll obey the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Our fathers disobeyed your law, but we're going to obey it. We've got this down now. We just need to make a covenant with you, God, and that will fix it. But they did not obey God's law. It didn't last. When Jesus came on the scene and we read those gospels, 400 and some years after this, you know, we're 400 and something B.C., 430-something, 440-something B.C. 400, over 400 years later, Jesus comes on the scene, and they're still in slavery then. They're still not keeping the law. History tells us nothing changed. It did not. God has said, you obey my law, I'll bless you. You disobey it, I'll curse you. When Jesus returned, they were under the tyranny of Rome, another empire. Sometimes I wonder as I read this, maybe they should have focused more on the Abrahamic covenant, like Abraham did, and not misinterpreted the point of the Mosaic covenant. Maybe they should have had faith like Abraham. The Bible says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was imputed or credited to his account based on his faith. No doubt they needed the law. They needed the law until Christ came. And so we find two principles that relate to man's inability to please God. And these are explained in detail in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. The first principle is this. The law was given as a guardian, not as a means to make one righteous. 
The second principle, the law was given as a tutor to point people to Christ. First, the law was given as a guardian, not as a means to make one righteous. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9, verse 31, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, by keeping the law. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They thought the law was a means to be right before God. And it was a stumbling stone. In Galatians 3, Paul said, For if a law had been given that was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. The law was a guardian for the nation of Israel. It says that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. The law was their guardian until Christ came. Galatians 2 and Galatians 3, no one is justified by the works of the law. That's not the point of it. Romans 3 again, verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. There it is. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's a guardian. It's not given to make one righteous. The law does not make us righteous. I've seen it. I've seen it in Christianity where churches will either try to go by the Old Testament law or they'll come up with some standard of their own different from the law. Maybe it includes parts of the law. And this is what, this is the standard for our church. But people are not made righteous that way. That wasn't the point of the law. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It reveals our hearts because we can't keep it. I can't keep it. No one can keep God's law. Every time we try to keep God's law, we find ourselves breaking it in and of ourselves. It cannot be done. Jesus pointed that out to the Pharisees. You've, said, you've heard it said of all, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. Yeah, they were outwardly trying to keep the law, but they weren't really keeping the law. The second principle, the law was given as a tutor to point people to Christ. Listens to the words of Paul in Galatians 3, verse 24 through 26. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we no longer, we are no longer under a tutor. We're not under the law anymore. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This promise is being fulfilled that was found in the Abrahamic covenant. So it's not only Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, but Genesis 22. Galatians quotes Genesis 22. Genesis 22:18 says, "In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed." 
And Galatians quotes that exact scripture and basically points out it doesn't say seeds. It says seed, singular. That seed is Christ. It's the Messiah, the Mashiach. And Galatians 3 also tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law becoming a curse for us. And it goes on to say, in order that Christ Jesus, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There it is, through faith. The law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. It shows us our sinfulness. It reveals our hearts and our need for the Messiah. It's the fulfillment. It points us to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In Christ This morning, we've been reminded of God's amazing character. He is great. He's mighty. He's awesome. He keeps covenant. But he's also gracious and compassionate with that kindred compassion for the elect. We've also been reminded of the, that the practice of sin leads to slavery and that we have no ability in and of ourselves to please God. None. None of us. Faith must be solely in Christ. As we said earlier, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes. His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Folks, salvation is in Christ, in Christ alone. If you think that you can be good enough to please God, you're missing the point. There's no law. If there was ever a law that could have made made man righteous, the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant was it. But that wasn't the point. It points me to Christ because I can't do it. And I know that righteousness comes through him. I know that he, by his grace, declares me righteous in Christ through faith. And faith alone. I can't add the law to it. I can't add any set of standards to it. But when God changes my heart, he gives me a heart to please him. He writes his standards on my heart. He changes my want to. So this morning, if you don't know him, with a repentant heart... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.
call upon him for mercy. Every person that is born from above has been sun-placed. We are part of the family of God through faith. We're adopted children, but we're not adopted like children of this world that doesn't have or don't have that maternal, paternal, brotherly connection. We are united in Christ by the Spirit of the living God. We have koinonia, fellowship, communion in the saints. We are indeed brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to have a connection. Don't misunderstand. I know what it's like. I know what that family connection is like. I loved my mom and dad, my brother and my sister. And they love me in spite of me because we're blood. But losing my mom and dad over the last number of years, I've realized God has used that into my life to show me where my real family is. My family is my church above everything else. We are out of the womb. And we have a koinonia, a connection that no earthly family could ever have. If I can remember, remember the words of Jesus at the cross. No, not at the cross. Where he's talking to his disciples, he said, my mothers and brother, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's my mothers and brothers. That's exactly what we're talking about here. In Galatians 3, 14, once again, finally, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I left one thing off to the end. You can't be righteous by keeping the law. You know what the key is? It's part of the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. When we're born again, we're indwelled by the Spirit of God. We're not made right with God by keeping the law. What's the key? Paul told us in Romans, told us in Galatians, walk by the Spirit. Just as you obey the Spirit in salvation, obey Him in your everyday walk. Walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's the new covenant that God in His Spirit indwells every believer giving us new hearts. God said, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the key right there to the Christian life. It's not a set of laws. It's the God that created us and has redeemed us, living in us with that connection, that out-of-the-womb connection. We are sun-placed. Let's pray.